Welcome to Zeitgeist with Zeitgeist. I'm your host, Zeitgeist. My podcast channel is dedicated to exploring ways of being in the world that brings us as human beings into harmony with ourselves, community, the living planet, and hopefully to something numinous. My hope is that by listening to this podcast, that you will discover other people, ideas, practices, and states of being that could potentially transform your life. My intention is that what you will hear and learn will contribute in some way towards living a life less controlled by dogma that is instead guided by love, beauty, and compassion for all living beings. This channel is is sponsored by one of my companies, Student Loan Tutor, where we help liberate our clients from debt so that they could share their gifts more freely with the world. In this particular episode, I speak with Jennifer Dumper. Jennifer is an oneironaut, which is a word that describes conscious dream travelers. Her work is unique to lucid dreaming as she works with what she calls, or what is called, the liminal spaces between being awake and REM sleep. And there's a lot of spaces in between there. We speak about both beautiful and spooky things that happen in these spaces, and why humans and why you should care, and how lim- liminal dreaming has been used by creative geniuses throughout time to create masterpieces. As we explore states of consciousness, we explore what it means to be ourselves, and our souls begin to awaken more into this world. I share about my experiences in liminal states and how for years I would do just about anything to avoid sleep paralysis that happens often in liminal dreaming and the fear associated with it and how now I work at cultivating these states to become more comfortable with the unconscious and my fear of death and dying. Death is, after all, the ultimate liminal space. I hope you enjoy this podcast and if you'd like to help out the show, please share this episode with anybody you know that's being that's suffering with uh, sleep paralysis or nightmares or just being afraid of things that are uncertain or anybody that you know that really likes to explore consciousness. It's a really cool way to uh, get the maybe a 20-minute or a one-hour version of having a hallucinogen without any side effects, which we go into on this podcast episode, which is really cool and you could cultivate it through time. Uh, also, please review us in iTunes. It's super helpful in spreading the awareness around these shows and around these unique topics if you rate and review in iTunes. So it takes about a minute or two, and we're really grateful for that. So thank you very much, and I hope you enjoy the show. All right, welcome to Zeitgeist with Zach Geist. I'm your host, Zach Geist, and today I'm here with Jennifer. Jennifer, how do I say your last name? Junpere. Junpere. I would have, I would have totally not done that. Uh, Jennifer is the author of the book Liminal Dreaming, and uh, I really enjoy the idea of how she describes what liminal dreaming is as surfing the edges of consciousness. And uh, just wanted to have you introduce yourself. Who are you? How did you get into this liminal dreaming? And why is this uh, important for people as being human beings and having this state of consciousness available to them? Why is it important that they explore this? Liminal dreaming is the dream space that lies between waking and sleep. So hypnagogia, as you're falling asleep, hypnopompia, as you're waking up, a liminal uh, means an in-between space. It comes from the Latin word limen, which is where we get words like limit, so door- doorway, threshold, so neither and both. So it's neither awake or asleep, and it's both awake or asleep. And you can go into the dream space and yet retain 
a certain amount of waking consciousness. We all go through this experience every day, every 24 hours. And How come we never hear about this, Jennifer? I mean, we hear about dreaming, we hear about daydreaming, we hear about being awake, obviously. In, in, our, in the new age world, you hear about being woke or asleep and whatever, whatever that means. And then there's this entire dream realm. I know the answer to this, but I hadn't known about this before. And this was simply an idea to me until I read other work that pointed me to this idea of this space. And I never heard it described as the liminal dream space, which is the perfect description. I've heard it described as hypnagogia, uh, which is kind of like, what is hypnagogia? And does everyone experience this? Is this something that you believe in? Or is this something that is actually scientifically proven by uh, dream researchers or neurologists, uh, neuroscientists to actually exist? It is, in fact, uh, a one of the seven or eight EEG states that we go through every 24 hours. So everybody has the experience. It, it, um, it's just well-known in science. And EEG being, of course, uh, the, those electronic, you know, the sensors and the brain waves. And if you, uh, most people are familiar with the way it looks, right? It looks like a sine wave. And it goes anywhere from, you know, gamma which is 40 of those waves per second. So when you're really excited or delta mm. really low, so 0.5 to 3 of those waves per second. So, you know, really low. And in hypnagogia, when you're falling asleep or hypnopompia, when you're waking up, which are the two states that make up liminal dreaming, every other sine wave that exists in all of the other brainwave states we have during the day is there. So it's there's like six brainwave states. It's very chaotic. Um, so it's the strangest mm -hmm. brainwave state, but objectively, sure, scientists know all about it. Yeah, we never hear about it mentioned. You this never hear about it mentioned, and it's very strange because nomenclature. everybody has the experience. And when I tell people about hypnagogia, hypnopomia, especially hypnagogia, people often say, oh, right. You know, so it's when you're falling asleep, you have that hallucinatory phase, and maybe you hear things or you see faces turning toward you or points of light, you know, maybe when you're struggling to stay awake in a dark theater or drifting off at night, everybody knows the experience. And when I tell people about it, they say, oh, right. I never really knew that was actually a thing. Um, so everybody knows mm. the experience and why does nobody talk about it? I have to tell you, it's quite a mystery to me as well. I'm wondering uh, if this is maybe the state that people are trying to seek to get to. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of this. You, you might have, uh, where people have talked about taking sleep medication like Ambien and then forcing themselves to stay awake. Is, is this something like the liminal dream space that begins to happen, those hallucinatory experiences? I mean, yeah. not that we're saying that people should do that, but this is something that could happen without ambient, right? Like this is something that you, you surf these states of consciousness every night when you go to sleep practically and, and uh, every morning when you wake up. I remember talking to you on the phone and you said, my favorite part of the day is the morning time I go through these deep dream, the, the, these deep dreamscape in hypnopompia. Uh, maybe you want to touch on somebody that's listening to that. What is that experience like for you, someone that's been cultivating this liminal dream practice, so to speak? Uh, yeah. So 
hypnagogia and hypnopompia have slightly different characteristics. Uh, hypnagogia is really a very kind of fast moving, swirling, kaleidoscopic romp through all of your memories, dreams, associations, images, everything in your internal world. So in a hypnagogic state, you're in this uh, sound or a tactile or visual uh, swirl of your internal world. Very fast moving, it's very intense, tends to be non-narrative, free associative, and you might get little stories like in a REM dream. Um, and then hypnopompia, when you're waking up, tends to be uh, much more drifty. You're, you, know, you might feel that you've woken up and then realize that what seemed to be a forming thought is, has actually gone back into uh, a floaty kind of dream. Uh, but it's also that kind of uh, a free associative and, and non-narrative. And in these states, you have enough waking consciousness to be aware of what's happening. But it's not like a lucid dream. It's not like you're you in a dream world. Because it's not narrative, there's not really a self and other. But you do have enough consciousness to be, um, to be understanding what's happening. You know you're lying in your bed. You can hear the clock strikes six or whatever it is. Or things that aren't even there at all. Mixed or things that things aren't even that are there, there at all. Yeah, for sure. You're very much in the middle. You know, you're, you can be 80% dreaming and 20% awake or the other way, 20% dreaming and 80% awake, half and half. And it We never really, really think about character. that. We, we often think about we're either asleep or awake and there's not much in between or we have deep sleep or not deep sleep. I, I think... Just for me, I could speak for myself. I thought that you were either awake, asleep, daydreaming, which is kind of like fantasizing and not being present in the moment, or uh, like sleeping without dreaming or sleeping with dreaming. And then in the past few years, I uncovered lucid dreaming and I was blessed with the experience of having very vivid lucid dreams. And I'm like, holy shit, this is the holy grail. I mean, this is the closest thing to magical powers I've ever, I've ever experienced where you could essentially be swimming in the sea of the unconscious, completely conscious. In some ways, it seems even more real than my waking life. Uh, and then I also have had experiences in, the, in, in what you refer to as the liminal dream space or hypnagogia and hypnopompia um, that m those experiences for me were more terrifying. Uh, they consisted of what I later found out as sleep paralysis, which I hope you could touch on, and uh, also just very strange hallucinatory elements, like where it seemed like dark spirits were in the room that had malicious intent and sounds banging, and you know, and it jolts me out of bed, but I can't jolt because I'm also in sleep paralysis. So then my heart's racing because I can't move and I'm seeing shadows. And I thought, holy shit, maybe I'm you know being punished from the other side or something. I mean. Uh, I, I really wish I had some understanding of this. And I think that I actually, a lot of my, uh, for many, many years, I would take Xanax or Ambien to go to sleep because I, I think I was frightened of these experiences and, and my fright of them and my worry in general in life uh, kept me awake at night. And then in addition to that, if I could actually somehow get through that liminal space, those were, char those were jarring as well. So uh, I think... I guess what I'm saying is I wish that I would have had 
some knowledge about what to expect. You know, I felt like the liminal space for me was a lot like Morpheus giving the pill without even tell, like spiking my drink with the red pill. You know what I mean? Like, I don't even know why I'm having these crazy experiences. It'd be helpful if he said, hey, you're about to take a pill and go down a weird rabbit hole and weird shit's about to happen. Just kind of roll with it. So maybe you could speak to like some of the experiences that some people have going through this hypnagogic state that maybe they could go, holy shit, I, I, I see that I'm also having these experiences. I don't like that experience. I think a lot of people might drink wine at night to try to really get through that, uh, that process. And I think a lot of people might get up in the morning and not stay in bed because maybe they're uncomfortable with, the, with these states of consciousness. I remember I had a friend and he said, I love my life. I love every, every aspect of it. I sa he says, there's only two things in life that I hate. It's, it's going to sleep at night and waking up in the morning. Everything else I love. And he says the reason why is that he would struggle to go to sleep and have like very uncomfortable feelings. And when he'd wake up, he was in, it's like, his, it's like a different mind was present. And essentially this is his unconscious, I think, that uh, he doesn't want to face that are coming to him in those, in those two places. And that's where his awareness is seeing it. But then again, I'm just guessing that that's what it is. Uh, what are your thoughts on what I just said? One of the things that you said is really critical to understanding liminal dreaming, which is people think about awake and asleep as on, off, or zero, one. But in fact, there's a continuity of consciousness. There's quite a long space in that liminal zone between waking and sleep where these dream experiences happen, where you, and you sink into the unconscious. And with, with practice, I mean, most of us, go through that space really quickly, you know, where it's only like 4% of your sleeping night um, is in the hypnagogia or hypnopompic space. But with practice, you can really learn to locate and linger in the, in the liminal dream. In that space, there can be some frightening things. Uh, it is true that sleep paralysis is often a liminal dream experience. You have something called um, REM breakthrough. So uh, when we're sleeping and dreaming, uh, our bodies are flooded with a lot of chemicals, acetylcholine and a whole host of other things that basically paralyze us. So we don't act out our dreams, right? Um, and so in uh, sleep paralysis, I mean, this is the objective scientific explanation, which is always only part of what's happening, if you ask me. But mm -hmm. the, um, uh, you, your REM kind of breaks through and your, your, you go into liminal dream space where you have enough waking consciousness and yet you're in the dream space and yet you're paralyzed. So it can be a very terrifying experience. And even if you're not having a sleep paralysis, for some people, uh, liminal dream space uh, can be very frightening, especially hypnagogia on the way in. So actually learning to work with liminal dreaming, learning to work with hypnagogia is an amazing way to learn to work with whatever fear you have in your unconscious space. If what happens in your hypnagogia or in your hypnopomnia is that you have fear, what that means is that that's what you have to work with. There are a lot of uh, studies where people have used working with hypnagogia. Um, so, for example, working with yoga nidra, which is a practice that brings you into the hypnagogic space. 
um, according, as I would say, as many other yoga nidra teachers would say, although some prefer different language. And working, for example, with people who have PTSD or people who have trauma and using being able to go into the liminal dream space and learn to have some facility with it, learn to have more consciousness in it, learn to recognize what's happening. And it, it, what it becomes is an incredibly safe space to work with whatever darkness or fear arises. You have enough waking Because you have enough awareness to know you're in the state, right? Exactly Most right. Of the time. Yeah, I mean, I've had the experience too where, uh, you know, I've had where I felt like I was in an alien spacecraft and there was aliens kind of walking around. At the same time, I knew, thanks to your book, this actually happened right as I was listening to your audiobook. I love that you do the narration, by the way, but it was happening during that time. And, uh, and I'm, you know, my heart's racing because I know that, uh, that I'm in, that I, you know, I see that I'm in this alien spacecraft and, uh, and, I be, and I become more aware. Somehow as I realize that, my awareness becomes more acute uh, that I'm in this liminal dream space. So I'm both excited that I'm in the liminal dream space and also kind of terrified at the prospect of how the hell I could be looking as though I'm in an alien spacecraft. And then I began, like I sat with it as my heart's racing and I remembered that I could breathe in this state. Like you still have control over your breath. So I'm like, okay, I remember that I have control over my breath. So I'm just going to breathe. And I was able to calm myself considerably by breathing. And then it started to get like my mind started to play tricks on me, you know, like you really are in a spacecraft, you know, you know, so I said, okay, I know I have other control. I could wake up. I could open my eyes, wiggle my toes and wake up, Uh, which I did. And as I did that, I couldn't tell if my eyes were open or if I it's like in my mind, my eyes were open while I was in the hypnagogic state. But my eyes were likely closed because I was able to open them again into the room. And as I opened my eyes into the room, it's like I could see that my brain or my mind, I don't know which one, uh, had taken the images of the room to make the spacecraft. So I watched as the spacecraft became part of my room. And again, I wasn't on any type of medication or any psychedelic. I mean, this was me just going to sleep at night and then <laughs> and, and being aware that this liminal space existed. You know, just the fact that I was aware of it existing and I wanted to be present with it, did this experience happen? I believe if I didn't know it existed, I would have just plowed right into the dream. Uh, Maybe we could talk a little bit about uh, why anybody would want to, other than people with trauma, to put them, like to get used to being uncomfortable and, you know, out of control. Um, What other reasons would people have to, to, to feel the motivation to explore these? You know, nobody climbs... Mount Everest unless they think it's important to climb Mount Everest. It's a lot of work. Exploring the liminal dream space, nobody's going to do that unless they feel like there's something to be had there. You know, there's, there's insight that exists or there's preparation. And when, what, what I see in this liminal space and the sleep paralysis and the surrender to the, you know, bizarre alien type background is this idea of this state is very similar to maybe how death is. Uh, where you really fully have to surrender into a completely shifting state of consciousness, which is how I imagine death. So maybe you could touch on why somebody would want to explore these liminal spaces. Sure. And that's and there, how you've seen. There are a lot of reasons. Um, I, I will say one thing about uh, learning liminal dreaming, which is um, it's actually pretty easy because we are all natural liminal dreamers. I mean, people think about lucid dreaming, 
which can be quite difficult to learn. But because we all naturally go through the state, in fact, uh, if people haven't already had the experience, if people, if your listeners aren't like, oh, I gosh, I know exactly what she means, then probably just hearing us talking about it now will be enough for people to have the experience because everybody naturally goes through it. Um, and then some people, for some people, it's not at all an uncomfortable space. For some people, it's a very uh, yummy, delicious, mm, like a little blanket kind of space. But there are a lot, a lot, a lot of reasons why somebody might want to try Liminal Dream Space. Um, it's great for creativity and problem solving. I can go into that a little bit more. It's great for healing, both for um, uh, both for psychological healing, the Jungian active imagination is about that, for physical healing, uh, you know, when you're, what do you do when you're sick? You're, you sleep. Um, it's great for um, consciousness exploration. You know, you really can see what's happening in your unconscious because you go into that zone with enough waking consciousness left over. And it's also just I mean, it's very psychedelic for a lot of the reasons that anybody might use psychedelics to explore consciousness. Um, it's great for those too. So that's a whole bunch of reasons. I'm happy to go into any one of those as interests you. Yeah, let's, uh, you know, for my listeners, I think what a lot of them might be really excited about is the psychedelic element. This, this other world that exists so close to this one. As a matter of fact, um, I hear Michael Mead say oftentimes that, uh, the sacred, the sacred place is the liminal space that's between this world and the other worlds. And uh, this is one of the points throughout religion and throughout, you know, all of, you know, not even just religion, but like shamanic cultures, they would have experiences of these liminal states. And it was very known that people would have this. Cultures valued dr the dream world or these states of reality more than they value this waking reality. This waking reality was just one of the realities. And th this is where they like, you know, ate food and maybe talked about those other dreams and then helped, you know, integrate the dreams into their tribe. It was just, this waking reality was just part of many worlds that existed. So I would love for you to touch more on the psychedelic nature. And uh, something that I really loved about your book is you went, and I'm the, the name, it just never wants to stick with me. Uh, own your one. Onerogens. You know what? Onerogens. There you go. Uh, how those differ, differ from uh, psychedelics. And uh, I, I loved how you explained it. So if you want to touch on the psychedelic element, that would be beautiful. Sure. So an onerogen, it comes from the Greek onero, which is dream, and gen, which is to create, like generate. And onerogens are anything that um, create vivid dreams. So it might be a food or a root or an herb or a practice, a sound, a scent. Uh, a lot of indigenous cultures work with onerogens, but we can work with onerogens too. And any of the, the practices that I use to learn liminal dreaming, uh, which people can, uh, if you go to liminaldreaming.com, there's a bunch of exercises that help people uh, find liminal dream space. And onerogens, as well as liminal dreams, in terms of like a, what a substance is, uh, I like to talk about um, subtle allies, right? So uh, in terms of psychedelics, so if you take 500 mics of LSD, it does not matter. You're going to trip, right? It mm -hmm. You know, it's, yeah. it's, 
you've invited it in. It's this overwhelming force, and you just you're just on the right now. Whereas subtle allies, things like onerogens, or even just the experience of the liminal dream, they really require you to step forward and meet the experience. They really require you to be an active participant in what's happening. And with liminal dreaming, uh, it very mu- it's very much like a psychedelic experience. I remember when I was young, we used to joke about, you know, we, we really wanted the perfect 15-minute trip. You know, you can really trip, and then you come down, and then you could immediately talk to, you know, the cops or your grandmother or whatever, no side effects, no hangover. And this is it, you know, it's free. I thought that was nitrous oxide. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, even nitrous oxide gives you a hangover, costs some money, has legality problems, bad for your brain cells. Um, totally. Whereas liminal dreaming is, I mean, and the experience can be extremely psychedelic. It's often like, um, almost like a, like a DMT experience, really fast moving, really swir- you know, swirling, uh, and you can do very trippy things with your mind. For example, I've been, um, I've been playing this game with my liminal dream space where I see how many dreams I can run simultaneously, right? Like different dream tracks. And again, they're not exactly narrative, but they're kind of experience. And so far, the answer is six. Um, but I have like six different dreams running on the same track. And I can pull out and see them from a distance or zoom in and look at a tiny detail. I had one. Wow. There was a whole world that was this um, city made of sub-substance I'd never seen of these, you know, beautiful wash of colors that was this kind of grippy architecture. And, and you do this without onerogens. This is just Yeah, this is just the, this is just the liminal dream space. And in another one, there was a bird made of glitter. And I could see the whole bird, all the glitter moving together and each little piece of glitter or zoom out and see the bird moving through space. So, I mean, six different, it's like being in six different places at the same time. Um, or, you know, things I've never seen before, colors that don't exist or in, in waking consensual reality or, you know, uh, colors that, that don't exist or marvelous sounds, you know, and so like, it's very mind expanding. And I could hear somebody like an older version of myself from 10 years ago saying, wow, that's really cool and everything, but what utility does it have in the way? I mean, this is part of our, you know, I, I, I got turned on to a book by Gary Lachlan from, from your book, uh, his book on, oh gosh, I forget what it's called. Something of the imagination, the lost, Lost Landscapes of the Imagination. Something like that. If that's not it, it's very close. And uh, again, it's that the imagination, these, uh, these, these realms like this liminal space or the psychedelic uh, states uh, have lost their value in our modern zeitgeist, in our modern way of thinking. Is it somehow, uh, if you can't measure it objectively amongst a group of people and look at it and say, oh, that is this thing, uh, then there's no value to it. However, we know, I mean, at least I do now, I know, and I can't prove it, but I know that the most valuable things in my life 
are these experiences that I have, experiences like love and connection and mystical experiences that I've had in nature and making love and you know friendships and relationships and dreams and and uh, and this connection with the soul and uh, communication of the unconscious to me that there's a there's you know Jung said you know they asked Jung once uh, on a, I think it was close to his death on this TV show and they said uh, Jung do you believe in God? Uh, expecting him to say probably not because, you know, he was a son of a, a minister and then he became a psychiatrist and, you know, he worked in, you know, uh, you know, science. So probably he doesn't believe in God. And he says, no, you're right. I don't believe in God. I know God exists. And then the epi- that, that episode ended like in the next 30 seconds. So he never had a chance to elaborate. And of course, he was the second most famous psychi- psychiatrist of all time. So everybody's like, well, what do you mean you know God exists? Like how, like, and, and people went crazy about it. And essentially, I'm, I'm, I could be butchering what he said, and I'm paraphrasing. Uh, but essentially, he said that God is essentially... Uh, wherever his ego, wherever he has an idea of something or he knows, you know, everything that's going on and then all of a sudden another intelligence is able to communicate to him something that he never would know or he had one plan and then some other unimaginable thing happened or synchronicity where it's a coincidence that has deep meaning that, that defies all statistical probability. And most people in their lives, if they look back, they've had these synchronicities. Uh, I know I just took a total sidewind turn from what I was asking you is, uh, what is the importance of these, of these experiences that you have in these liminal states and how does that carry over to how you live day to day with your relationships, your work, going to the store, writing, all those things, all the quote unquote uh, objective reality things? So many answers, but I'll just, I'll just pick one randomly because we were just talking about the kind of the psychedelic experience, which is the, um, the visionary, right? The access to the visionary and to creativity and problem solving, right? So the visionary is not just the realm of artists. It's not just the realm of, um, you know, of the, of the shaman or the, you know, whatever, like everybody has these experiences. Everybody wants creativity in their life and going into these spaces of the unconscious really opens up a kind of a visionary consciousness. Um, I'm going to tell you about a practice. So independently of each other, Salvador Dali and Thomas Edison came up with the same practice for using liminal dreaming for creativity and problem solving. And here's how it worked. I just have to pause that. Uh, Salvador Dali and Thomas Edison both practiced liminal dreaming. I just wanted to like make sure that anyone listening can grasp that for a second because that's that's a they were both highly creative and they essentially created through this state, which is what you're going to go into. But I just wanted to, you know, put like a big exclamation mark on this, what you're about to say. The periodic table was conceived in a liminal dream. The benzene ring was conceived in a liminal dream. The song yesterday was written in a liminal dream. Agassi figured out how to chip away stone to find fossils in a liminal dream. I mean, it, it's it, the way that it opens up the mind. Um, so the practice that Edison and Dali came up with independently of each other is when they were very tired uh, but not going to sleep at night, each man would sit back in a big, comfy, easy chair with metal plates on the ground next to them. And um, Thomas Edison kept a ball in each hand and Salvador Dali kept a big brass 
Spanish key in his hand, and they would, and uh, Edison kept a notebook and a pencil, and Dali kept a sketch pad. And they would go, they would lean back and go into a hypnagogic dream space. And then as soon as they started to actually fall asleep, they would naturally let go of what they were holding, the balls or the key, which would hit the metal plates and wake them up. And Edison just immediately started writing down ideas and Dali started sketching. And that's how Edison, who invented like everything that we use in the modern world, came up with a lot of his inventions and how Dali came up with a lot of his ideas for his artwork. That's amazing. I think what's so beautiful about that is that we often are told somehow through like sheer force and willpower, uh, we're going to be creative. Or on the other hand, the flip side, that either you're already creative or you could just never be creative. And, and generally speaking, I see that the truth lies somewhere in the paradoxical liminal space of all of that, uh, which is uh, the willpower exists. Uh, the willpower is important uh, in the sense that you need practices that can cultivate creativity, kind of like alchemy. Like you can't just make it. It's not just like you will it to be there. It's you will yourself to do a practice that then cultivates the creativity. And the creativity, these ideas come from either your deeper self, from God, from spirits, maybe your ancestors, maybe from the spirits of the place where you are. I mean, who the heck knows? That's what's so beautiful about this is it's such a mystery. It might come from a different place each time and, or and these realms even the experience of these liminal states it's not just the same one place that you go to is it it's like the liminal dreams feel different there's different degrees and different you know it wasn't always that you were having six dreams happening simultaneously you didn't always have the same ideas and even sometimes the ideas come and they're not ready yet uh, to be like to be uh moved into this reality in a way that we, we, we might have one of the puzzle pieces, but the rest haven't come in and clicked yet. Maybe, uh, is it, do you find that to be the case? Oh, absolutely. And the philosopher Ospensky felt that we were, he theorized that we are always dreaming, that the dreaming is always there like a river running through our experience. And it's just a matter of kind of dropping into it. And that's true of me at this point. I pretty much can go into a liminal dream space at will. I just close my eyes and, and sink into it. And this, 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 this swirl of my own unconscious, this dreaming experience is always, you know, running alongside whatever else is happening. Do you ever get scared that you just kind of have like almost such an alien way of experiencing the world that, that other people don't have. And it's like, it's that fear of having a superpower, I would imagine, like being one of the only, you know, like I think of the X-Men and Professor Xavier and, you know, he finds and he finds these gifted children that have these superpowers and they're different and they have different insights. And, you know, he eventually gets them mentorship and, you know, introduces them to one another and to the people that have honed their skills, you know, and I think we really crave to have these experiences, which is why, you know, the, the film industry is able to sell us uh, all of these movies, you know, that we become obsessed with. If you look at kids nowadays, they have, you know, every manner of, of superhero. Uh, uh, and I like it. I like that it's not just Superman or just one character. I love that there's like almost a, a polythe polytheistic superhero universe, so to speak. I, and I think this is preparing people for 
tapping into their own superhero nature that we can achieve in these other states. Whether we could, you know, shoot ice out of our finger across the sky, uh, you know, maybe we can. I mean, this is where these, you know, where airplanes are flying across the sky. We're able to split the atom. I mean, all of these ideas came from somewhere, but thank goodness they don't come instantly. Uh, thank goodness these other realms exist where we could exp like experiment with these and that our wisdom could ripen before a lot of these these elements move through that realm into this one. Um, something that comes to mind for me is picturing uh, a lot of the different shows coming out now. Like, for example, Stranger Things, where you have, you know, Eleven, who's able to kind of live between these two worlds. And then you have The OA. I don't know if you've seen that series. If you haven't, it's incredible. She goes into these, you know, liminal spaces. And this, this type of liminal space is a near-death experience where these people, if you haven't seen the OA, sorry for ruining that for you, but uh, it's a phenomenal series nonetheless, and I don't really take anything away, but she's able to go in between. Uh, they're able to actually stay in the near-death experience, and they're able to essentially harvest wisdom and ideas and creativity from that space and then bring it back into the quote-unquote scientific objective world. Uh, and that's, of I don't course, know if traditionally what the role of the shaman is, right? It's going in to the other world and finding wisdom and bringing it back, which is how a lot of indigenous people, traditional people understand dreaming at all. They understand dreaming as what? As going to other realms, going to places where you can get wisdom. You know, and that's one of the main ways that people use onerogens. You know, like the Chantal people of Southern Mexico or Northern Guatemala use something called Kalia Zacatechichi, which is um, uh, a, an amazing onerogen. Uh, you can buy it online. And it's, um, the idea is that when you're dreaming, you go to the realm of the gods or the spirits and they give you teachings. But it's so hard to remember dreams that we forget what they've taught us. You know? And so the Kalia is to help, to help us bring back wisdom. But a lot of what it does is it gives you these sensorily vivid dreams, taste scent, touch, sound. I've read books with, you know, highlighted in red and, you know, I mean, where the dreams are amazingly vivid to all of the senses. Are these REM dreams, liminal dreams, lucid uh, both. dreams? Both REM hmm. dreams and liminal dreams and lucid dreams. Actually, a lot of people use Kalia to induce lucid dreams. Wow, what an unexplored entire field. We just never hear about it. It's like right now with Michael Pollan's book, uh, How to Change Your Mind coming out. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, psychedelics actually have value. And it's like, well, anyone that's taken psychedelics has, has noticed that. I mean, unless they've taken too many, in which case they might have lost themselves or become taken over by the authority of the medicine that they've taken. So they take a trip and they are like stuck by the trip almost. That's a nice uh, way of saying it, the authority of the medicine. It can take yeah. over. But totally. that's one of the things that's amazing about the liminal dream space is it really can, it gives you everything that you get out of the psychedelic experience. And so it's, you know, for people who don't really want to go for something that's quite as strong as psychedelics, for people who are, who have some fear, for people who don't want the intensity of that experience, for people who want to do it really regularly, for people who like something that's endogic, you know, like the endogic high of you know what's created in your own experience without anything external any of any of those kinds of things the the liminal dream will provide for you you know i'm curious and i don't know if i've I, you and i had spoken before and we talked about a lot of things but i don't know if i brought this up 
I was talking to David J. Brown. I interviewed him on the podcast a while back on lucid dreaming, and he works a lot with psychedelics. And he had talked about how in lucid dreams, he has taken DMT in the dream and had full DMT trips or had full ayahuasca trips within a lucid dream because his body essentially remembers the medicine. I mean, who knows? Someone might be able to do, I don't, I've, I've never met a person that has, but they might be able to try something like ayahuasca or DMT. Uh, in a lucid dream, having never even done it, because the DMT is released in our body anyway. Uh, and I'm curious if you've had these experiences either with lucid dreaming or with liminal dreaming or both, where you've been able to experience the sensations that those psychedelics or those chemicals have given you uh, within a dream. I've had it happen with alcohol. I've had it happen with cigarettes and woke up and felt guilty for starting to smoke again. But it really, it was just a dream, you know, just quote unquote, a dream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and even even in... REM dreams, lucid dreams, REM dreams, liminal dreams. And um, in my experience, David's experience, and in the experience of a lot of other people I know who are really avid dreamers, um, have this experience of a substance and really particularly DMT. Something about DMT really lends itself to the dream. So that, that one more than almost anything else, I know people who have uh, either actually taken the DMT itself or taken something some mystery drug in the dream and had it be like a DMT experience or even just like when I'm trying to describe uh, how hypnagogia feels to somebody who might not have been paying attention to their own hypnagogic experiences, but who, who was familiar with that. It's kind of the closest comparison that I can make. Mm. Yeah. Some, some moments are coming back to me of that, of that state between you know, worlds and you're coming back and forth in between them. And it's disorienting. It feels a lot like you would imagine birth and death happening at the same time feeling, but yet being conscious through that process, which, you know, it's it's debatable how conscious we were in the birth process to begin with. I mean, for example, I was born cesarean section in a hospital a month late, you know, and my heart was racing. So maybe that's that's why my heart might race. When I'm when I'm in these liminal spaces, one of the reasons that resonant. one of the reasons that people really like to um, get involved sometimes with with um, you know with medicine or with you know plant allies or you know chemical allies, whatever they are, uh, and that is something that you also get in the liminal dream space is a, the breakdown of the waking ego that really drives our experience. Right, so we we're very we tend to be very um, performance oriented. We're trying to accomplish this or, you know, get that done going through our day with that ego. Oh, what did, I wonder what that person thought of me or I really need to get this done. And in the liminal dream space, even though you have some consciousness, uh, that part of the ego tends to go to sleep. So it's also really good for like a meditation experience in the same way that psychedelics can offer. And Jennifer, I don't know if I think I told you this is that I was actually cured of addiction. I mean, I was able to stop my like white knuckle for about a year. I had unfortunately been prescribed oxycodone at one point. And uh, I guess when you have a ton of trauma in your life and you take oxycodone, all of a sudden it like throws a warm blanket around you that you've never felt. And you go, oh my God, this is like, I feel so incredible. I could think, I'm calm, I could sleep. You know, I'm not tormented. I'm not like, my emotions aren't all over the freaking place. And uh, and I knew it was bad for me. And I, I kept the 
thankfully I never went to heroin. A lot of other people were not so lucky. They were, didn't have the resources or didn't have, I was always very resourceful. And, uh, and so I was, and lucky, you know, cause I mean, even with my resources, I remember there were some times where I had run out of oxycodone and like I had to basically, I had, I didn't have to show up to work the next day cause I owned my own company. So I was able to start a withdrawal process rather than take heroin. Whereas other people would say, well, shit, I'll do a little bit of heroin. And I, you know, I've never touched heroin because I just never gave myself thankfully that option. Uh, and a lot of people don't have that luxury. Again, they have kids to support and they're like, shit, I got to go to work. Or I'm going to lose. I can't go into detox right now. So, and I can't get any more oxycodone. And they got the oxycodone from a prescription. Like me, I got my oxycodone from prescription from, you know, dental problems, which then all of a sudden I, you know, during that I got so much work done that I had to just keep the momentum going. I'm like, wow, I found my limitless pill. And uh, I was able to white knuckle it off. Again, I, I lost everything while I was white knuckling because I couldn't function for a year. And uh, I had heard of a boga, Ibogaine, and I had even bought it and had it like shipped over and probably, you know, it's probably completely illegal to do this, but I was desperate and there was no solutions in the West and I didn't have the money to go to one of these retreat centers. And I shipped it over and I had it and then I heard about how terrifying the experience can be and that one in 300 people at the time, I think it was, one in 300 die when they take it. But a lot of people that take it have liver problems and heart problems and stuff from drug use. So my likelihood was probably nowhere near that, but it was also terrified I didn't have somebody to watch over me and I hear you can't really move. So I just kind of had that in a little bag and I'm like, okay, if it gets too bad with this withdrawal, I'm going to take it. And I just, you know, I made it through the withdrawal experience, you know, uh, using Kratom and Imodium AD. And when I couldn't drink the Kratom anymore, I found other ways to take it. Uh, and, uh, cause I would throw it up, you know, and, uh, I made it through the final withdrawal. That was the worst withdrawal I'd ever been through. And I'd been through that quite a few times. It's, I could really, really empathize with what addicts feel like. Uh, you get stuck in this idea, this, you know, how do I avoid, eventually your life becomes, how do I function enough to be able to buy enough of this to be able to with, avoid withdrawal? And uh, that's your whole life. Thankfully, I was able to somehow manage the entire rest of my life in a way that nobody knew, or at least nobody said to me, hey, I know you have an oxycodone problem. From They just thought I was really charismatic and had energy all the time. But you know, I would disappear once every couple months for a couple weeks and withdraw because I knew I had to. And then I'd say, I'm not doing it anymore. And then some life tragic thing would happen. The anxiety would hit unimaginable peak. I wouldn't be able to sleep for multiple nights in a row. I suffered from insomnia. The minute I take opiates, solves all that problem. Anyways, I say all this to say, eventually a year later, I ended up taking Ibogaine, Iboga. And the experience of Iboga seemed to be a cross between dream states. It had the liminal dream space when my, uh, when my eyes were closed or open and I was you know, way more in the liminal space. I can't really describe it any other than that. I would think questions and I'd see mathematical equations to the questions I would think. I would see my thought patterns and how they were. I would kind of be standing outside and seeing how that functioned. And then with a boga, when you would relax into it, you would, event, you would actually enter into a lucid dream. And this went on for you know, over... 48 hours. I mean, no food, you know, like, I don't even know if I drank water. I can't remember. But, and then with my eyes open, you're also hallucinating. It somehow seems to, the medicine seems to override your waking state of consciousness and make your dream world enter into your actual space. But uh, it was the miracle of that medicine that really has me value this very, this, uh, this highly uninvestigated, unexplored realms of consciousness that are present 
right here, right now. I hope in my dream, in my dream of the world, is that, yeah, aboga is great if you're like, absolutely, if, if you need it. And hell, if you need it, that's great. But there's only so much aboga in the world. It's very, it's, it's in, it's, uh, it's, it's, almost, it's being depleted faster than it could grow because of the oh. huge opiate crisis around the world, especially in the U.S. But I, I hope that there's some way that we could use liminal dreaming, lucid dreaming, and dream work all enmeshed together with these onerogens to be able to explore this with therapists that could help some help somebody like me or someone else that's addicted go through this process and heal and uh, not just get off drugs and white knuckle it. And instead of using, you know, opiates, they're, you know, drinking 20 cups of coffee a day, smoking two packs of cigarettes, taking Xanax, you know, uh, you know, miserable, having shitty relationships, but actually healing, becoming whole, integrating the ego and the soul and being able to function and offer their gifts in the world. Do you know if uh, there's been much work uh, with the psychological aspects similar to a boga with addiction, with liminal dreaming and lucid dreaming and dream work? Not, not a lot that I know of. I, there definitely has been um, work with, um, like I say, with PTSD, with pain, with insomnia. Um, uh, I know that there's, I've done some work with like integration, like integration circles. Um, uh, liminal dreaming is great for that. You know, I mean, what do you mean by integration circles? Uh, so, uh, people who have gone into psychedelic space to explore, and then how do you mm. kind of integrate that into what your daily experience is or how you're thinking about it? Right. I mean, it's like what you were talking about earlier with the, um, you know, what you what you don't want to do, or at least what I think you don't want to do, is to be relying on, you know, like to, for example, be, you know, going back to the ayahuasca all the time and letting ayahuasca give you the answers. I mean, you know, so going into an experience, having an amazing experience and then integrating, right. Being like, what did that, you know, what, uh, you know, what is, what, what came from that experience that is going to seep into my life or into my consciousness or into my actions or whatever, how do I integrate that experience into um, my life? And one of the there seems to be a big lack of that in the medicine movement where it's the idea is that you come and you take medicine one, two, three times or whatever the prescription is, and then somehow just the medicine alone is supposed to cure you or help you gain the insight or give you the experience, the mystical experience that's supposed to make the wrongs in your life become right. And if it didn't, then somehow you didn't do it right and you got to keep coming back for more medicine, so to speak. At least this is what I've seen happen in, in kind of the culture that I see taking a lot of medicine and, mm -hmm. you know, and, and integration circles are something that's, that's becoming a little bit more common. Um, you know, again, in the wake of like Michael Pollan's book, for example, and a lot of other, you know, uh, you know, sort of psychedelic use is becoming much more prevalent in the, 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 the consciousness of the overall population. And so therefore people are able to talk about it a little bit more understand it a little bit more. So these ideas of integration are really uh, starting to bubble up. I mean, and not only with medicine work, I mean, also with, um, you know, if you're looking at, you know, what is the, the current crisis we have around the fact that we're messing up a lot of nature, you know, the, in, the, in the Anthropocene, you know, or, um, you know, or where we are right now, this crazy worldwide Thing that's happening with the virus and 
how do you think about these things or how do you solve them? One of the ways that uh, liminal dreaming can be really useful here is that it's, it's a different way of thinking. Clearly the ways of thinking that we have, uh, that, that we've been utilizing in the last few years are, aren't necessarily getting us somewhere, you know? So how do we think differently? You know, things like that, that ego goes to sleep or, you know, the, the, there's an interconnectedness in the liminal, you know, like, a, like what I think of as liminal mind, the space between self and other kind of breaks down a little bit, all of these different ways. How do you reconceive the world or the self? I like what you said there, and I think it was in your book or in Gary's book that he talked about the mundus imaginalis, which is the essentially the world that's right here, that imaginal, that imaginal realm. Not imaginary, but imaginal realm. I, I think that in order for us to get into the disastrous mess that we're in, uh, that we're faced with, with this whole COVID thing, the ecological destruction, uh, depletion of entire countries' resources. The fact that we even look at land as resources as though like we could like deplete them and then somehow that's good for us eventually. Like that's future Zach's problem. That's future generations' problem. The fact that we sacrifice relationships and beauty for this abstract called money, which is essentially something based on debt and 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 is propelled through the idea of the future. And if you break down the future, it all collapses back backwards. And if you sit and look at it with even the slightest bit of imagination, you could see that that's very clearly what's going to happen. And the only way to like say that it's going to be fine is to just ignore a ton of evidence to the contrary. So I think what maybe we're being asked to in, in our quarantines is, is, uh, is to look at how the, the mundus the world of imagination, the, or the, imagine, the imaginal realm, the imaginal world can open up for each and every one of us so that we could discover what our gifts are, see what our wounds are, oftentimes they're linked, and figure out a way to recreate the world after coming out of this, uh, in, this initiation, collective initiation, so to speak, in order to make the world more beautiful. Maybe it's not the perfect beauty overnight, you know, but it, I don't think that beauty is a subjective. I don't think beauty is completely in the eye of the beholder. I think that there is something, you could look at something and say whether it's beautiful or not. You know, you could look at a concentration camp and it's not beautiful. You could look at slaughterhouses, they're not beautiful. You could look at somebody beating their child, it's not beautiful. You know, you could look at land getting completely depleted, you know, and people working the land just for substance to go back to their families where they feel completely worthless. That's not beautiful. Uh, and I think that we're always gonna move towards them, you know, at least, I, I say this, we're always going to move towards more beauty, but we're not, we haven't been. So how do we hold this idea of beauty as important? And in order to hold the idea of beauty as important, instead of the idea of efficiency and money and more as important, takes imagination. You have to actively imagine, sorry, imagine what it is that we want to see. And maybe that's what we're being called to do. And it's, and sometimes maybe when we get into these liminal states and when we have dreams, uh, Sometimes it's terrifying what we see because what we see is our shadow and we see our shadow projected onto the world as well. So I think a lot of people want to avoid it. And I think even some, some of what's happening with a lot of people drinking alcohol or taking pharmaceutical drugs is to, to mask that. And not that I'm against alcohol or pharmaceutical drugs. Had it not been for alcohol, I wouldn't be alive right now at 40 years old. I wouldn't have made it through all the shit I made it through without alcohol. I probably would have killed myself or killed somebody else or done some crazy ass thing or just lost my fucking mind. So I'm grateful for alcohol. Had it not been for opiates, probably still would not, I, I probably wouldn't 
wouldn't have made it. So it, it had its, its band-aid. I wish I would have known what I know now because then I wouldn't have done that, but I didn't know what I knew now. So here I am. Um, but I, I do think that what we're being asked to is to be more imaginative because it takes imagination to do something different. If we don't have imagination, we're going to keep doing the same shit we've been doing. If we say, oh, you know, this is just the way it is, that's, that, that's a completely not imaginative way of, of speaking to the world. It is what it is. That's, nothing is what it is. Like, like, even what it is is constantly changing. Everything is alive in some way. Uh, you know, even death is alive. Like I, you see an animal die out there. It's alive. The only thing not alive is money, you know, like <laughs> money is the only thing that is immortal and just exists, you know, and, uh, and it's an abstraction. I guess the only thing that are alive that, sorry, the only thing that is what it is, is the abstraction itself because it's not actually real. It's only real to, to the degree that we hold it to be real. Uh, and I think we're being asked to be to live in a more alive world. I agree with you. And sometimes that includes death. Sorry. Um, the, you know, and the imagination is, is really, uh, really essential right now. So you talk about like the Mundus Imaginalis and these ideas conceived by like the Sufi. So right, the Sufi, the Sufi idea that imagination is as much a faculty of perception as vision or you know, hearing or whatever. I mean, and in fact, because imagination is the only way we can conceive the divine. It's the most important faculty of perception. And um, often in the, so I talk about the continuity of consciousness between waking and sleep. And when you're going into liminal dream space, hypnagogia or hypnopotamia, often the, especially again, hypnagogia, because you're going from the awake, often the first thing that happens is the imagination, right? You feel your mind kind of start to loosen and things from your imagination will start to bubble up. So imagination is the doorway into that, that continuity of consciousness. And imagination is really where we can go into what, you know, what is the world as we feel it ought to be, or what is ourselves, like what, what is self in the way that you want it to be? What is the, what is the world? It requires imagination. I mean, essentially, we could live in the world of all of these beautiful fantasies that we want to live in. Not that we live just in fantasy, but th that world could begin to like, I see it as like sinewy or having webs, that world having webs to this world where we're moving through the world in this creative way and, and, and watching the, the mythology of our own souls act out in the world and actually experience that, not as as I mean, maybe not all the time, but not as some form of hyperbole, but like actually experience that we're acting out like this is one element of, gosh, I'm really struggling. Like, I'm struggling for the words because we it's so seldom that we talk about this, but that our existence at all times is some variation uh, or some alchemical mixture of dreams. Even this waking life is maybe, you know, 1% or 5%, I mean, I hate to use numbers to describe it, but to make it make sense, you know, is greater in wakefulness. And to the degree that we're creative, to the degree that we allow these other realms to come in is the, different in the difference in perspective that we're able to see the world in um, and ourselves in. We can't see the world differently than we see our, like, see, it's again, struggling with the words. As we see the world differently, we see ourselves differently. And as we see ourselves differently, we see the world differently. And as we see our consciousness and who we are and what it means to be, quote unquote, to exist, uh, our 
our fears begin to diminish. Like as you're able to stay awake within states of consciousness that you hadn't ever experienced before, I think it begins to dissolve uh, what death may be like to us, which then breaks down fear. And then when fear breaks down, our life begins to blossom in a way that, it, that wasn't possible before. That's kind of what I was seeing as you were talking about all that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, and in the book I talk about um, liminal mind, you know, part of what this developing this practice of liminal dreaming really brought me into the understanding not only the sort of space between waking and sleep, but the space between self and other, space kind of between, you know, life, death, you know, the, the way in which the, um, however I am perceiving the world changes at least my experience of the world, you know, and then that can, that can ripple out into the world in general, right? But you're not, you're not separate, you know, like so take the idea of a sound. Right. If a bell rings over there, the sound waves travel through the ear, travel through the air into my ear, and my mind kind of says bell. So where's the sound? At the bell? Is it in the air between me and the bell? Is it in my ear? Is it in my mind? Right. It's it's actually the you know the the relationship between you and you know and the sound. Right. And so the this idea that we're so separate. From thing um, is not it just isn't the case, right? Everything is sort of liminal, right? The you know, and so the idea with the liminal dream spaces, I really find found myself going into liminal mind of really understanding that my that there's a a mundus imaginalis, there's a world that I imagine that I you know that I perceive. There's no such thing as, at least from my experience, as the world without me. You know the you know it's like my idea of what, ha- you know, my, like over here is where these cats live that I really love, you know, so that block, that city block has an experience for me in it because I know that the cats in the yard are going to come over and say yeah. hello. So my imaginal world is overlaid on top of the consensual reality world. And somehow experience is happening there. It's happening between this this liminal world that's only me and my relationship to it and the the world that exists completely without me. It's so fascinating that you say that you have this experience, this map, and I think you talked about in your in your book, a topography. Uh, and I had a dream last night about topography. I'm trying to remember what the dream was. I wrote it down. Uh, but that there was a topography that was present. It actually was about a guy writing a book, and he says, you know, the book is a topography. Uh, I don't know how that connects here, but I, I think that a lot of people lack indigeneity. At least I could say I did. You know, everywhere I lived, I lived for a year or two. Mm. I'd be there for a year or two, and then I, and then I move, and then you know, then I live there for a year or two. This is ever since childhood. You know, so uh, I've struggled to really lay down a map, and I think maybe this is happening with a lot of people. Mm. The average person lives moves once every few years. The average person that even buys a house isn't in the house more than seven years. So they're constantly moving. The relationships are constantly changing. The place that they're in is constantly changing. And I wonder if that is just very disruptive and it makes it harder to create 
this, to have this foundational fabric and uh, to, you know, because our consciousness isn't just limited to our head, it's limited to our space. I hear you say liminal space, right? It's limited to the space. And I'm starting to know, notice now, living on this 86-acre farm, that the trees blow in different ways. The winds blow in different directions. The, the way that the sun comes through the clouds is, is different every day. And the way that it casts out, it, it doesn't just look different. It has a different feeling, a different texture. It's, I, I, I lack the words, like the English language. I, I, I would have to write poetry yeah. in order to be able to describe how different it is and my experience of it. And I think this is uh, in this book that I, that I read by Gary Lachlan, as he talks about how it wasn't that the poetry that we read now from, you know, more ancient times is, uh, is a bunch of clever people writing poems that are poets. It's just the way people talked back, spoke back then. And that as we, uh, uh, as we begin to be able to speak in a poetic way, and we might do that by reading poems at first, the way that we view the world begins to shift too. David Abrams, uh, uh, wrote a book, uh, Becoming Animal and the Spell of the Sensuous. And the way that he speaks, he di- he narrated Becoming Animal. Uh, Becoming Animal? I think that's what it is. Mm. is uh, the way that he speaks is a constant evocation into his world and way that he perceives the world. And I think that I picture a world where it's so beautiful that people's language is a representation of their view of reality, which it probably already is. People's language probably already is a representation of how they're perceiving the world. And the people that do speak in this poetic regard, in this poetic way, they're probably viewing the world from that perspective. And sometimes it is a very light and also dark world. It's very vivid, whether it's light or dark, whether it's a bad show or a good show, it's uh, a pleasant or unpleasant, maybe I should say. It's very vivid and full and rich. And uh, I really am excited to, uh, explore this new world as we move into uh, a new way of being in the world. I think this, this is a great opportunity f- with this whole COVID quarantine to get there. I noticed you grabbed something off your shelf. There. Uh, uh, Gary Lockman lost knowledge of the imagination. I figured I would, since we were there talking it about is. it. Yeah. Yes, yes. I actually just bought his new book that came out. I pre-ordered it. Uh, hopefully it ships out. It has, it has to do with Holy Russia. I don't know yeah. if you saw that book that he, yeah, yeah my family is from Russia. So I'm yeah. the first one in my family born here. They're actually from Sib- the Siberian part of Russia. And, you know, so uh, curious to see what that book says. Uh, I also was so moved by your book that I not only read that book, I started to, uh, I found the doctor that you'd mentioned that I believed it helped your mother. Uh, my who aunt. Was, uh, your aunt. Yes, yes. Uh, and he wrote a book called Death is But a Dream. It just came out a few months ago. Yes. I don't know if you, you probably heard about that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, super fascinating that people are experiencing these dream states when they're not drugged. Uh, they're experiencing like extreme levels of grace and uh, integration. Their whole life is becoming, it, they're, they're, they're in their death. They are whole. They're experiencing their entire life and everything is coming together. Yeah. And I think that... that Go ahead. That was from this amazing experience that I had where my, um, my aunt, to whom I was extremely close, um, she was um, dying. So uh, it, this was in Buffalo, New York. And I you know, sat by her deathbed. And so I was at the hospice where she was dying. And after, after she had lost her sort of daytime waking consciousness and never did wake up that way again, she was still talking and mumbling. And I realized that she was in hypnagogia. And, you know, because of what I do, I have a lot of practice. 
talking to people in hypnagogia. So I was able to speak with her. I mean, and, and the conversations you have with people who aren't in hypnagogia are non-narrative, you know, so she would be, you know, she thought that she was with Ziggy Stardust at the mall with her neighbors and their dogs or whatever. But, you know, I, I would be having these conversations. Oh, yeah, Robin, what is Ziggy Stardust wearing? Oh, there's mm-hmm. dogs and the dogs don't like people and the dogs are called bombadillions or whatever. And so mm-hmm. I got to have this amazing, you know, after a couple of weeks after she was no longer speaking consciously. And then later, um, you know, after she had died, I, I learned that the hospice in which she was dying was run by this guy, Dr. Christopher Kerr, who has just written this book, Death is But a Dream. And one of the things that he writes about is that people who are dying are often in hypnagogia. And because, um, because they're rambling, because what they're saying makes no sense, and it freaks out families and loved ones. And it's true, mm-hmm. my relatives would be saying, no, Robin, you're not with yeah. Ziggy Stardust. You're here in the hospital. But I'm like, why, why tell her that? And so what, one of the things that he's saying she is clearly that, um, is with Ziggy Stardust. She really yeah. is. She's not like trying to fuck with you guys. Like she's telling you what her experience is. She's trying to evoke in you a connection, allowing you to be there and like, like witness her in this experience that she's having. It's a very vulnerable space for her to be able to have this. Yeah, exactly. And what, um, and what Christopher Kerr is saying is that uh, because it freaks out families, uh, they, get, they, get, um, they, they drug them right? Because it gets called delirium. And so people are robbed of the last experience they have of life, which is dying, which is the process of dying, this liminal space between life and death, which is also a liminal dream. And that, um, and just to think about that, to think about the fact that even the space between life and death, there's a, there's, boy, talk about the reasons that you might want to try practicing liminal dream. The idea that the very last experience that you have of your own life might be one in which if you have a facility with liminal dreaming, um, you're having a very different experience. That's dying. Learning to die well seems very worthwhile to me. There's a great book called Die Wise by Stephen Jenkins. It is amazing. uh, Yeah, it's incredibly vivid the way he uses his language and his, his... his understanding of etymology of words and their history and the way that he crafts it's almost like a spell to really bring you into the into the deathbed. Um, truly, like you you can't read that book and and feel the same way unless you're pretty anesthetized. Uh, I could kind of view, I kind of view your work as almost like a doula between states of consciousness, like a consciousness doula uh, taking Ooh, people a between. Yeah, that's a good business card right there. That's one of the nicest <laughs> things anyone's ever called me. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. You're in such a new. You're in such a new place, you know. And uh, it's really beautiful to see people really sticking in that new place and watching. I'm, I'm sure for you that liminal space is not just a a short little sp- gap. As we stay with something, it grows bigger and bigger. And I think that. Uh, something how I viewed my life is when I find something I really love, that's the act of cultivation. I cultivate those moments and those moments begin to grow, not through like visualization or the law of attraction or anything. I just find myself wanting more of those moments and then those moments begin to expand and the center of those moments get richer and richer and then those begin to expand and they carry over and they become our lives. Um, 
Gosh, I know we could talk about so many things, and I know our, we are already over time. Yeah. Uh, I think maybe you and I should talk again. I'd love to, in a future call, a uh, future podcast, and see what my listeners think, is talk about the Oracle at Delphi and, uh, and hear about uh, the fact that I believe that those messages from the other side were coming through uh, the Oracles who were in liminal states of consciousness, where they're being able to communicate while in that state. I had a dream also, maybe I'll end with this. I had a dream that was very profound when I was doing a lot of work in the Jungian realm. And it was Carl Jung sitting in a chair in like an almost ecstatic state of consciousness. And uh, the, the thing with the, with the soul and the way that the soul communicates through dreams, what I found so strange was uh, Carl Jung was kind of dressed normally, maybe like not quite how I'm dressed now, a little bit you know, more contemporary for his time. Uh, but everybody else was wearing suits and they were all around listening to him. And he looked as though he was like asleep, but he was still able to talk and he was moving around in some way. So he wasn't fully in sleep paralysis, but he was kind of just moving in some way. And I, and I knew that there was, there was something to that, something about what moves through him into this you know, more rigid place. You could look as objective reality and kind of people that maybe people call squares, not that I mean that as a pejorative. It seems like our world can't have everyone being a shaman at the same time. It would be absolute total chaos. So, you know, as this image moves through, and it's not that someone that's a quote unquote square always remains there or that they need to move to not be there. That's their role. They have an important role. Uh, but I, I just I think it's really beautiful that the people that do explore these states of consciousness that they have some way to explore it without being fully taken over by the medicines. You know, working with the medicines very consciously. You know, like I know I'm I have the potential to have this medicine tell me that I'm in love with that person and I should leave my family and quit my job and move to the jungle. Like. You know, and the medicines will do all sorts of things. It will speed up a process or take you for a sidewinder turn, which you might have been able to get somewhere like there without so much struggle. But uh, yeah, yeah, there's so much. Again, I feel that urge to just keep this conversation going. But uh, I think like all good things, uh, it must go through a transition into another state. Uh, so here we are. Is there anything else that you wanted to uh, touch on in ways that people could connect with you, Jennifer, and connect with your work? Or you know, do you have any online workshops coming up? Um, I, I did some private dream workshops recently with Dr. Claire Johnson that I didn't even advertise. Nobody but my closest friends knew because they filled up the minute I did that. But maybe you offer uh, dream workshops or anything I am, like that. I am right now. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I have a lot of events planned this summer. So I'm, I'm right now figuring out how to shift those things online. But people can um, track what I'm doing uh, on my website. They can go to www.liminaldreaming.com. I post a dream a day on Twitter as Onerifer, O-N-E-I-R-O-F-E-R. I've been doing that for 11 years. On Facebook, um, it's Liminal Dreaming. Uh, And so all of those... Uh, venues are places to find where my um, next events are, or I love to hear people's experience when they're working with um, with liminal dreaming. So I'd love to hear from people. Great. And Jennifer, do you ever offer like online like workshop series? Uh, yeah, for sure. Do you? I have. Cool. I have done so, and I'll be doing so again. Like I say, I, I'm you know I'm 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 right now figuring out how to how, you know take some of the things. You know, usually summer is on the road 
and yeah, doing beloved festivals. festival and you know all the big festivals that are happening, Burning Man and everything else. I know you're right. a, a keynote at a lot of these, speaking about these states of consciousness yeah. where people have this deep interest. Uh, maybe you and I could talk about, and if you hear this podcast and you're really interested in exploring more work with Jennifer, we could talk about potentially putting together a uh, a private you know mentorship type group with Liminal Dreaming uh, for that. for our community. That'd be really cool. Fabulous. All right. Well, thank you, Jennifer. Thank you for all of your time this evening and this afternoon for me because a big time gap. Uh, I look forward to talking to you more about all of these things. Thanks, Zach. Thank you so much for listening. And please follow us to hear future episodes where we discuss topics such as alternative states of consciousness achieved through dance, intention, and shamanic practices, sacred economics, dream work, trauma healing, building community, permaculture, healthy and compassionate living and eating practices, somatic and alternative healing modalities, politics, psychology, mythology, and more. Our work is focused on the liberation of spirit, a return to the sacred, which is a constant collective inquiry. We aim both in person and on this podcast to plant and water the seeds of liberation from economic inequality, trauma, systemic conditioning, addiction, loss of soul, loss of meaning, hopelessness, helplessness, isolation, shame, nightmares, guilt, and a return to glimpses of your birthright, of dignity, joy, community, collaboration, equality, and constantly beautifying new world where you are not alone. And always, if you're ever in the Salt Lake City area, come join us for yoga, dance, or in the garden. A community of beautiful souls are here to welcome you. We gather in community Wednesday, 6 p.m. till 10 p.m. and Sunday, 11 to 3 p.m. And we have a vegan brunch or vegan dinner after every event. Our gatherings are all ages and are of no religious affiliation. We look forward to seeing you.